The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, my home base. As you know, if you've been tuning in for a while, this show is all about showcasing guests who are meaningfully connected to their work in the hopes that we can learn from and be inspired by their stories to pursue our own career dreams, to truly work on purpose. I've had the pleasure of talking with all kinds of people across all ages so far, chefs, nonprofit executives, professional racehorse trainers, craft beer brewers, spiritual teachers, CEOs, hypnotherapists, professional speakers, etc. The list goes on. It's been really fun for me and also very inspiring and I hope for you as well. With us this week is Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of the Task Force for Global Health in Decatur, Georgia, just outside Atlanta, where he joins us today. Dr. Rosenberg is also the lead author of Real Collaboration, What Global Health Needs to Succeed, along with two previous published works. I happened to cross paths with Dr. Rosenberg in April when I had the distinct pleasure of hearing him speak at the Carter Center on the topic of addressing global health and its resulting impact on global stability. And I was so taken with the breadth and depth of his long career in global health care and the impact he's had in the field that I could not resist asking him to join us as a guest and to share a bit about his career and what's driven him to work the way he has all these years. Dr. Rosenberg, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks. My pleasure. Well, to get us kicked off here, will you just simply introduce yourself as you normally do and say a bit maybe about what you do at the Task Force for Global Health and also what the organization does? The Task Force for Global Health works on large-scale global health problems, largely problems that affect the poorest and most vulnerable people around the world, what we sometimes call the bottom billion. But we also hope that what we discover in the work we do can benefit many others. And one of the principles of our work is that a lot of big Global health problems require collaboration among multiple organizations, but this does not usually happen. And so what we try to do is basically to get the big organizations to play nicely together, to collaborate, because we believe very, very much that working together we can accomplish so much more than any of us, even the best of us, can achieve alone. So we've tried to learn some lessons about what are some of the obstacles that come up that make collaborations not be very successful, and what are some of the principles that we should apply if we want to have better luck with them. 
Such an impressive organization, Dr. Rosenberg. I was so so, so taken with that when you came to visit um, our group there at the Carter Center. I'm really impressed with that, and I think our listeners will be as well. So very crisp description. Now, what about your day-to-day? I think when listeners see someone who's got the kind of role that you do and the title that you do, they must be very intrigued and wonder, how does this man spend his day? So I realize it probably varies tremendously day in and day out, but generally speaking, Dr. Rosenberg, how do you spend your days? What do you do with your time? Well, I think a large part of what I do is to try to support and mentor the people who lead our various programs and to support and mentor a lot more of the people who work here. I've been very, very fortunate to have had two extraordinary mentors who had a huge impact on my life. And I think people often don't appreciate the value and the importance of mentorship. Mm-hmm. I guess it, I was struck by something, and maybe your listeners would appreciate this, but this is a story, it's a little roundabout story about mentoring. And it started one night when my wife, who's a psychotherapist, went out to dinner with some of her colleagues, other psychotherapists, at a local restaurant near Emory University where we live. And while she was in the restaurant, she saw two people come in. And she said, oh, my God, I hope they don't recognize me. Because (laughs) these were two former clients. So she put her head down and prayed. But fat chance, they kept coming right over to her. Now, if you're a psychotherapist, you don't want to see your clients in public because it's very hard to know how to introduce them without betraying your confidentiality, without saying this person has a serious psychological or mental health problem. You don't want to announce that. And especially when you're with a group of other psychotherapists, it's very hard to hide it. So she had hoped that they would not see her and she could avoid this. But no luck. They came right over to her and they came up to her and they said, you may not remember us. And she said to herself, fat chance. (laughs) They said, but about three years ago, we were having problems in our relationship and we came to see you and you helped us. You helped us so much that we've gotten married. And we've always said since that day, if we ever see you again, we're going to have to come up and say thank you for helping us so much. And my wife was very touched by that. And she came home and she told me the story of what had happened when she was out to eat. And I asked her, doesn't that happen all the time? Because she's very good, really good. And she said, no, almost never. Mm. And I asked her, why? Why doesn't that happen more? And she thought for a moment and then she said, I think it's because my clients think I'm just in this as a business transaction and that I do this to make money, but that I don't care about them. And I said, is that true? Because I know how involved she gets with her clients. And she said, no, not at all. Nothing could be further from the truth. We get very involved with our clients and their lives. We care about them deeply, but they don't understand that. They don't understand that it's not a relationship limited to financial exchange. 
It's a meaningful relationship. But they don't come up to me because they don't understand what the relationship is like. And it struck me that it's very much the same when we have teachers. We often think that our teachers only care about us because they get paid to do that. And in truth, if you step back and think about it, people don't go into teaching because they're going to get rich or make a lot of money. And in fact, what means the most to all teachers is when a student would come up and say, boy, I really like the way you think. I love the way you teach. Could we get together for coffee? I would just like to talk to you a little bit more. And I think that would mean so much to the teachers, just like this thank you meant the world to my wife. I think people don't appreciate why people are really in the business of teaching. So very often we fail to get mentors. We don't go up to our teachers when we're in school. We don't go up to meaningful people when we're beyond school and out of school and at work. We don't go to our valued supervisors or colleagues. We don't ask them if we could go out to coffee, if they could become our mentor. And this is such a tragedy because I think one of the most wonderful resources all of us have who are thinking about careers is to get a mentor. And a mentor is a relationship that starts when, hopefully, when we're young and builds over time. And it may change from a relationship where we start as a student to teacher and then maybe they become our employer and we're their employee, and then maybe it turns into a colleague and colleague, and then a friend and friend, and it can become one of the most richest, most important assets to us in our career that we ever have the chance to have. But I would urge the listeners, go get a mentor. If you're a student now, don't leave school without one. This may be the most valuable thing you take away from school, and it can be a relationship that lasts your life. Even if you're in a work situation now and you're finished with school, pick someone that you think might become a mentor. It's a relationship that requires cultivation, but I assure you, if you pick wisely and pick well, everything you invest in it will come back multiplied many folds. And it will help you along the course of your career. You'll be able to ask the kind of questions that come up, and you'll get the feedback from someone who knows you, who knows your strengths, and someone who most of all cares about you. I couldn't agree more, Dr. Rosenberg. I've still got one in mind that I've I've kept in my life for, oh, I guess it's been more than 30 years now, and I keep him close. And so I really appreciate your, your words of wisdom there. Do you think you would mind sharing a bit about your mentor? How did you, your mentors, how did you find these people and just a bit about why they were so important to you? Sure. No, I'm happy to. They're very, very special. Um, one I met when I was a medical student, and my roommate and I lived in this small, cold, second-story apartment in Roxbury, Massachusetts. And we decided that before we left medical school, we should invite a faculty member 
and his or her wife or partner for dinner. Well, we were the world's worst cooks, bar <laughs> none. We were really awful. Um, but we thought, gee, if we get some chicken parts downtown and we cook them in kind of an orange and honey sauce, how could that not be bad? So we picked one of the faculty members who had been very prominent as a chief of medicine at one of the hospitals and was also interested in community development and community relations. And he seemed like a very important role model potentially for us. So we invited him and his wife. His name is Howard Hyatt. He was the chief of medicine at Boston Beth Israel Hospital. We invited Howard and his wife, Doris, to dinner, and surprisingly, they accepted our invitation. They came, and not only did they come, but they ate the food my roommate and I nicely prepared. They were incredibly gracious and nice. And over time, that blossomed into a very rich relationship. And when I had graduated medical school and had gone down to work at the Centers for Disease Control, I got interested in doing a photography project about what it was like to be a patient, how illness affected you, how it affected your family, what the doctor-patient relationship was like. I wanted to do this as a documentary photography project, and I turned to Howard Hyatt, and he arranged for me to get a stipend that would pay for 50% of my time. He helped me get into the hospitals to do this. He supported me incredibly, and he gave me a teaching position at the School of Public Health, where he had become the dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. But Howard is one of the most giving, caring, supportive and optimistic people I have ever met. He also mentored three other people very closely who have in turn become very close friends, and we consider ourselves brothers by another father. But he has been supportive not only of the four of us, but of three generations of people. And Howard is a real model. And when I ask, should I give back to others, I think about what Howard would do. What would Howard do? And he's just so incredibly giving and supportive that he's been a wonderful model. I was lucky to have one other mentor. And again, I probably met Howard in 1972. So that's a long time of knowing him. And the other person is Bill Fagey, whom I met when I was a preventive medicine resident and EIS officer at CDC. And Bill supervised the preventive medicine residency. And uh, I really valued his input, his thinking. I loved the way he thought and started a friendship with him then. I went back to Boston, and after a few years, he asked me to come back to CDC to start a program looking at violence as a public health problem. And uh, I stayed close to Bill over the years, 
he became the chairman of our advisory board for our program in violence prevention and injury control. And then he invited me to come join him here at the Task Force for Global Health when I left CDC in 1999. Um, but over the years, he really went from being a teacher to a supervisor to my boss to a friend. And then uh, I think with both of these people, Philip Roth, the American writer, summarized it best. He was talking about a mentor he had named Bob, who was his high school English teacher. But Philip Roth established this relationship with his high school English teacher, who over the years helped him with what he was writing and supported him. And Roth said, to cut to the chase, Bob and I fell in love. (laughs) And I think this has happened for me with both of my mentors, It's not a sexual love, but it is a deep and abiding um, love and caring and respect. Um, So when I talk about the potential of a mentoring relationship and what it could reach, um, it can be one of the most important relationships you ever have in your life. We don't get to pick our family, but we do get to pick our mentors. And I think they can be so important. And as you said, Elise, um, they can influence the course of your whole life. And Mm. I would just urge people to get started, to think about the people that they know and, and try to get things going, enrich them beyond the work setting or the school setting in that standard relationship, because you never know what it might turn into. Mm, Thank you for that, Dr. Rosenberg. That was absolutely beautiful, and I couldn't agree more. I I think, one, I want to really applaud your your insight or your foresight to select a mentor at such a young young age and to select someone so talented. I think a lot of people are afraid that people will turn them down or afraid, oh, they're just too busy, whatever it might be, and I I really applaud your your selection already. So thank you for that. Uh, We're already at our first break, so let me go ahead and, and set us up for that. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who is the president and CEO of the Task Force for Global Health and is the lead author of Real Collaboration, What Global Health Needs to Succeed, along with two previous published works. After the break, I want to learn more about how it is you decided to become a doctor, why you joined the field. Stay with us. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. If you're looking for tips for personal success, look no further than DJ and the Bear, keeping you at the top of your game with your hosts, leadership and personal effectiveness consultant, Dietta Jones, and Richard Dent, formerly of the champion Chicago Bears. 
Together, as a husband and wife team, they've raised a family, owned two successful businesses, led major philanthropic initiatives through their foundation, and lived the ultimate lifestyle. Find out their secrets. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who is the president and CEO of the Task Force for Global Health, who joins us from Decatur, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Let's pick up where we left off. Um, Dr. Rosenberg, you were talking about the importance of mentors in your life, and that was a wonderful set of examples you gave us. Completely agree with that. Next, I'd love to hear how it was that you decided to even enter the field of medicine in the first place. I, I, would, I wonder if maybe you had other ideas in your mind, but help us understand how did you choose the idea of becoming a, a doctor and entering the field? Well, I think... I don't know exactly what was the reason or what was the key, but I think that probably my family had a big influence on me. I came from a family that was very committed to kind of giving back to their community and giving back to people who had less. They were also committed to civil rights and equality as very important social values. My mother had always wanted to become a doctor. But my grandfather thought that, and this was at a time when there were very few women doctors in the United States, he thought that that would be such a difficult road. He wanted to save her from going down a road that might just be frustrating. So he convinced her first to try teaching. She did. She tried teaching. She could do it, but she still wanted to be a doctor. So she forged the path of becoming a doctor in the community, doctor, a general practitioner. And she had her practice probably for about 62 years. She practiced in Montclair, New Jersey. She had an office out of her home, and she was the physician for Montclair State College and worked at several local hospitals. Going out in the middle of the night was normal routine for her to go deliver babies or take care of someone. And... To her, what was really important was helping people. To my father's consternation, uh, she didn't care much about the business side of it. And this was at a time when most doctors had their own individual private practice that they regulated or failed to regulate as they saw fit. But she started out charging $5 an hour for her patient visits. And when she retired at the age of 87, she was still charging $5 an hour. So she was very committed to her her patients. And I think both the idea of serving others, helping the community, and being able to help people in a meaningful way attracted me very much to medicine. 
and I was interested in both medicine and government in college, and I toyed with the idea of law school, but ultimately applied to medical school and went and studied medicine. I wasn't sure of what specialty area I'd go into, and I thought it was so important because I thought if I wanted to be happy in my work, I had to pick just the right specialty. It wasn't enough to have become a doctor, but I had to pick the right specialty. And I thought that was so critical. And so first I went into medicine and internal medicine. Then I went to CDC and studied public health. Then I went back to the hospital and studied infectious diseases. And during that time back in Boston, I'd been working on this documentary, a set of photographic studies of what it's like to be sick and what it's like to be a patient. It was published under the name Patients, the Experience of Illness. And unfortunately, it's out of print, but it's sometimes available on, on Amazon, sometimes for twenty-seven, <laughs> sometimes for more. But for me, it was an incredibly important experience. I did the project because I love photography, and I think it's a tremendous way to tell stories about people that are so important. So I thought I could tell the story of what it's like to be a patient, and that's how I could get supported for my photography efforts. I had had many friends who were much, much better photographers than I, and I saw how hard it was to support yourself as an artist. But I thought, oh, I would have this special angle. I would tell people what it's like to be a patient because I'd gone through medical school. I was an intern, resident. I worked for a general practitioner. I thought I could tell people what it's like with my photographs. And so I started on this project and what I found out was that I knew a little bit about what it was like to be a doctor, but I knew absolutely nothing about what it was like to be a patient. And not only did I not know what it was like to be a patient, I didn't even know that I didn't know. It was the ultimate arrogance to presume that just because I had helped care for patients that I knew what it was like to be the patient. And so for me, it was tremendously important learning experience, learning what I didn't know and learning how much I didn't know. But I decided I wanted to spend more time talking to patients, talking to people, understanding their problems and their stories and trying to figure out how best to help them. And so then I did a residency in psychiatry to learn more about patients and to have a specialty where I could spend time talking to people. You know, nowadays it's very hard, if you're a primary care doctor, it's very hard to get more than seven minutes to talk to your patient. And there's real limits into what you can learn that way and the kind of relationship you can set up that way, but 
I decided I would go and be a psychiatrist because you could spend more time with the people that way. So I tried a variety of different specialties in medicine, thinking that what would make me happy was finding the right specialty. I don't think I realized that I could have been happy in any of those fields that I studied, and I could equally be unhappy in any of those fields that I studied. And I think it put me on a quest of finding out what it was that would make me happy at work. And what I found out was a real surprise. And what you found out was that you didn't understand the patient experience? Is that what you mean? No. What I found out was that all along, probably starting in second grade, people told me if you want to be happy in your work, you have to work hard and stick to it. Mm. So that if you learn to draw your cursive A's and B's and E's and IOU's really well when you're in second grade, then you'll move up and you'll be in a good sixth grade class. And then from sixth grade, if you work hard and do well, that's really important because you'll go to a good junior high school class because that's when they start to segregate people by ability. And in junior high school, you're going to have to work really hard if you want to be happy because you're going to have to take the PSATs and do well on those. And you want to do very well in junior high school so you can get into advanced placement classes. And if you want to be happy, you'll have to do really well in your advanced placement tests and on your SATs so you can get into a good college where you can work hard some more. And then if you want to be happy, you have to pick the right graduate field and the right graduate school. But if you've worked hard and stuck to it, you'll get into a good graduate school, and then you can get a good internship and a good residency. And if you get a good residency, you can get a good job. And if you keep working hard and sticking to it, you will be happy in your work. And that's what I had been taught. Mm. That if you want to be happy in your work, you have to work hard, do really well, and stick to it. And it wasn't until much later in life that I found out that the most important thing about being happy, at least for me in my work, was not how hard I worked and how well I did, but it was the people that I was working with. Mm -hmm. And it came as a surprise to me, Elise, and it was a surprise because all along I'd been taught happiness comes from working hard and doing well. And not only hadn't I been taught that it's the people you work with and that what I realized was if you work with people you respect and they respect you and you share the same values, and you can laugh and talk together and enjoy each other's company and value each other as people. That's what's going to make most people happy. And not only hadn't I been taught that in second grade or sixth grade or seventh grade or tenth grade or college or medical school, it hadn't even been mentioned. Mm. Wow, that is profound. 
that was the big, big surprise. And uh, I may be a slow learner, <laughs> but I think a lot of people I talk to have similar experiences. And uh, I think when people look for jobs, they don't tend to really examine carefully who it is that they'd be working with. Who would their boss be? Who would their colleagues be? What's the culture of this organization? I think those are such important determinants of whether we'll be happy at work that I think the more thought and attention we give to those, the more luck we'll have in finding a job where we are happy. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I really want to acknowledge about what you've just narrated there, Dr. Rosenberg, is just the true, beautiful genuineness of it. You are such an authentic person. I saw that when I heard you speak in April, and it oozes from you today in this conversation. And I, I just get the idea that you are who you are in every interaction, whether it's with a patient, whether you're in Africa someplace, or whether it's with one of your grandchildren or somebody you work with. It's really, really lovely to hear someone be so real. That's one of, another one of the reasons I was so attracted to you and wanted you on the, on the show, because I think that's so good for our listeners to hear and experience that authenticity that you seem to so, I don't know if, take, if it's taken years to, to get to this place or if this is just who you are, but it's, it's very lovely. Well, you're very kind, Elise, but I don't want to pretend to be super good or superhuman. Um, and I struggle with a lot of the same things that I think all your readers struggle with. How should I respond to this person? What should I do? How should I do this? How do I... One of the really important questions, and to me probably the hardest struggle of my work life has been the work-life balance. Oh, yes. How do you find the right balance between work and family, between work and non-work? I think that's such a hard struggle, and I don't think it's something that you can decide one day, oh, I'm going to balance it um, 57-43. I think the questions come up every day. You know, you're supposed to go to your child's soccer game and you're supposed to be there at 4.30. And at 4.15, your boss asks you, can you stay for this meeting? That's about to start. That's really important. Mm -hmm. I think every day the question comes up or you've made a commitment to be with your wife or partner at a certain time. And then you notice, oh, there's just two more things I have to do here before I leave. And, geez, it's going to take another 20 minutes. So I'll, I'll be late, or do I go? And do I just say no? And how do I balance my priorities? I think it's something that needs attention every day. And I don't want to pretend that this is a problem I have solved or that I have the answer. I think it's a, a struggle. Mm-hmm. And I can't even start to list how many other struggles <laughs> I have over time. Um, but these are tough issues about balancing work and life. Um, they are. I'm still know, learning. 
You might be interested to know that there, the new term for what you're describing is called work-life integration because we've given up the idea that we can balance it. <laughs> well, the best that we think we can do now is to integrate them in some meaningful way that actually doesn't make us crazy. So um, there are a lot of my colleagues that are working on, on more research in that field, and I, I think it's also extremely important. And I think it becomes easier when you are doing work that is meaningful to you, that somehow allows you to live who you are in your work realm as well as who you are at home. Um, but you're right. It's a really important thing to, to consider and try to spend time focused on in order to keep yourself sane and happy and probably successful, too. I, the only fear that this new term raises in my mind is that work-life integration means instead of having work be at work and home be at home, we bring work into the home so that work also takes over our life at home. You know, we're available by cell phone, by texting, messaging, email. I think it's so hard to keep them separate that the notion of integration, in some spheres, integration is very important. Um, but it may be that in work and family balance, separate but equal may still mm. be a useful principle. Mm. I don't know. I, I like that quite a bit. I think you're right, Dr. Rosenberg. I do think we're heading down that more dangerous, precarious precipice. I think that's exactly right, and that's where we are going. And hopefully somebody will intervene, some of my colleagues who are researching. Um, but we are already at our next break, if you can believe that. So let me cue us up for that real quick here, and we'll, we'll, we'll continue afterwards. Um, I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Mar Mark Rosenberg, who is president and CEO of the Task Force for Global Health and is the lead author of Real Collaboration, What Global Health Needs to, su to Succeed, along with two previous published works. After the break, I want to hear more about the two most recent works you've been at, the CDC, and your current role today to hear some of the things you've been working on. Stay with us. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Our world is shrinking. We get information across the planet as fast and as easily as across the street. Lately, it seems as if none of it is good. The world has become so addicted to negativity, fear, drama, and our kids are learning fast. Are you worried about your teen? Do you know where they are, who they're with, and what they're really up to? Power of Peace Radio tackles real issues that are changing the minds of the next generation. Get involved in the conversation on Monday evenings with Kit Cummings. Pop Radio is about interrupting and redirecting those who are on a dangerous course and bringing light into dark places with powerful topics and real stories. We bring hope to those who need it most. Because hope is the new dope. 
Power of Peace Radio, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. I'm Elise Cortez, your host from here in Dallas, Texas. We're here with Dr. Mark Rosenberg, who is the president and CEO of the Task Force for Global Health, who joins us from Decatur, Georgia, just outside Atlanta. He's been sharing with us some of his perspective, things that he's learned along the way in his career that have been very interesting and valuable, certainly for me. Next, I'd love to hear more, if we can, Dr. Rosenberg, about your last two um, major um, engagements, first at the CDC and then at the task force. And so to start, I know that you had a long and very impressive career with the Center for Disease Control's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. And I think you were also the director for the center and assistant surgeon general. And you worked on things such as smallpox eradication, enteric diseases, and HIV AIDS. Would love it if you could share with us some of the work that you and your team did over those years, some of maybe the advancements that you were part of, some of the things that maybe you're most proud of. Well, thanks, Elise. Um, I'm proud of the people that I had to work with because I think CDC is a place that really encourages teams to work together, and you have a group of incredibly dedicated, very, very hardworking people. So for 20 years, I was a bureaucrat, and I was really proud to be a bureaucrat. And uh, I still am incredibly proud of so many people who serve not only CDC, but other parts of our government and our armed forces. I think working for the government gives you an insider's perspective. And for me, it, it was one of basically great pride. I worked at CDC for a while, first in terms of looking at diseases that caused diarrhea, things like Shigella and Salmonella, cholera, botulism, and had a chance to work on smallpox. And that was a campaign that was led by Bill Fagey, who subsequently was the person responsible for eradicating smallpox. It was the first disease and so far the only human disease ever eradicated from the face of the earth. And he was an incredibly selfless and visionary leader. He still is. And uh, I was very, very lucky to meet him as a teacher and ultimately as a mentor and friend. I worked there for a couple of years on these enteric diseases and smallpox, then went back to Boston. And then he asked me to come back to CDC because he had led an analysis of what are the things that are killing Americans. And what he found was that CDC had started with a focus on infectious diseases. In fact, one single infectious disease first, malaria, and then had spread to other infectious diseases. But what he found was that 
it wasn't infectious diseases anymore that were killing Americans. And there were a whole host of problems that were killing Americans that we could study and analyze and prevent using the same analytic approaches we'd use for infectious diseases, using epidemiology, which is the study of diseases among large numbers of people. So he asked me to come back and start a program that would look at violence as a public health problem, because what he found was that it was a very, very important problem. Things like child abuse and child sexual abuse, child neglect, to teen dating violence, to intimate partner violence and domestic violence, to youth violence and gun violence, to elder abuse and sexual assault, and finally looking at suicide and suicide attempts. All of these were forms of violence. And what he found was that the United States had a lot of efforts focused at developing a coordinated approach to things like preventing heart disease, cancer, and stroke, and even dental disease. But there was no effort in this country to organize a focal point looking at violence as a public health problem, even though it claimed many, many lives in terms of deaths and lives damaged and destroyed each year. So I went back to CDC to help start this program. We started looking at the patterns of violence, the patterns of suicide. What was the problem? Who, what, where, when, and how were they affected? That was the first question we asked. We decided we would apply science to this problem of violence. So we asked four questions. And the first one was, what's the problem? Who, what, where, when? And how does it happen? The second question we asked is, what are the causes? What are the things that put people at risk? Does mental illness, is that the leading cause of youth suicide? Or are there other factors like substance abuse that are causing it? But what are the causes for each type of violence? We could ask these same questions. What's the problem? What are the causes? What works to prevent it? And how do you do it? So these four questions we asked for each of these types of violence. And I think we're making very good progress. And today, there is a National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. When Bill Feige asked me to come back in 1983, there was no unit whatsoever really looking at injuries and violence. Injuries include both intentional injuries or violence, plus also unintentional injuries, things like car crashes, fires, drownings, poisonings, both accidental poisonings and poisonings that may occur with street drugs or like the epidemic of heroin deaths, the horrible epidemic sweeping our country now. All of these are unintentional injuries. And what we did was we raised the visibility of this as a problem. We started to compile the basic science behind these injuries and what could we do to prevent it. And ultimately, 
we helped to establish at CDC a national center for injury prevention and control. And I think this center now is one of the shining parts of CDC, bringing attention to a whole host of injuries in very important ways, and I think making some very important discoveries and contributions. One of the things they're looking at, for example, is what are the costs of violence? When we first started looking at this, we thought that the cost of violence against children, for example, was that sometimes they would have black eyes or broken bones or even internal injuries sometimes and occasionally death. But we thought that we measured the cost in terms of these physical injuries and how long it took to fix a broken arm, how long it took to heal, and what kind of permanent impairment it might leave. But what we have learned so far is that that grossly underestimates the cost of violence against children. And it turns out that when children are exposed to abuse, neglect, or direct violence, that they live in this state of constant hypervigilance, mm-hmm. always in the fight-or-flight mode, always with adrenaline and steroid hormones coursing through their body at very high levels, and their brains actually develop differently. The proteins get put down in the developing child's brain differently if they live as a victim of abuse or neglect or violence, or even if they witness violence on a regular basis. And they don't have the capacity to soothe themselves. They grow up being hyper-responsive to the stimuli in their environment. And they grow up with a much higher incidence as adults of hypertension, of cardiovascular disease, of respiratory diseases, of asthma, diabetes, much higher rates of substance abuse and alcoholism, much higher rates of risky sex and sexually transmitted diseases, In fact, a whole host of medical problems ensues from children being exposed to violence. We didn't have any idea of that earlier, but it turns out that those are the huge costs associated with children who are victims of violence. And it suggests to us that if we want to prevent huge, huge costs on the healthcare system, and huge and intolerable cost to families and communities, we have got to intervene, got to intervene early. The potential benefits are so great that we can't start to count them. CDC is now doing a whole set of surveys of violence against children in developing countries around the world. And it turns out that the rates of abuse and exposure to violence are very, very high in the range of about 30%. So we're talking about a huge proportion of the population that could benefit and be helped in a way have these lives that might have been disasters, have them become productive members and happy members of society. So what we're learning about violence prevention, and so much of this is coming out of CDC and the work that they fund, 
it's very, very important and stands to improve our lives significantly. I want to make it clear, I am not responsible for this work or for the things that have developed together, but I think by bringing the right people together initially, by pushing to develop this center, by developing a division of violence prevention that now has outstanding leadership, I think these are contributions that can help not only our country, but countries around the world. So I I worked in that area for a very long time at CDC, and then left there to come at Bill Fagey's request to the task force for global health, where we were working on how to help children realize their potential in development um, as children. What if we supplied to them the right resources and the right environment? How much better job could we do in developing the potential of the child's developing brain? I came for that, but stayed here at the task force, where we subsequently have really focused on major global health problems that we talked about in the beginning here, problems that require collaboration among multiple organizations to succeed. And in all of our program areas, I think this is a key. How do we get organizations and individuals to work effectively together? I think we've learned some very important things in that arena. And one of the things that we learned is that building a coalition is very much like a marriage in that it's very, very easy to get into both. It's easy to get into a marriage, but it's very, very hard to make it work. And what we've learned is that most partnerships or coalitions don't reach their potential. They run into problems. But I think if we can help people learn and anticipate the kind of problems that come up and to understand that it's no easier to make a coalition work than to make a marriage work and that you need to do work on it every single day, it's consistent, but it's worth it. It's one of the most important things, the most valuable things we'll get in our life. That's the kind of work we try to do here. And we work in a number of areas. We work in the area of the neglected tropical diseases, things like elephantiasis and river blindness, blinding trachoma, intestinal parasites of children. So we try to help develop very large-scale programs that ultimately will reach hundreds of millions of people to help them get rid of the kind of parasites and infections that cause these diseases. And uh, I think, again, it's very gratifying work, but it's work that involves teams of people. We have incredibly generous donors. Some big pharmaceutical companies give extraordinary amounts of their drugs that we can help get to ministries of health in developing countries and help organize effective elimination programs. Again, things that we can do together that none of us can do alone. 
Dr. Rosenberg, I need to stop you there, and what a perfect place to to stop. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but we're coming very close to being out of time, and what you just said there was so important about how many lives you're able to impact and who's helping you and who's partnering with you, and also so very important. I, I'm, I have just maybe one minute left that I could that I could give to you if you want to say anything else in that wonderful mind of yours to share with our listeners before we close. Sure. I would like to end with a note of optimism. Mm-hmm. And I think that in terms of finding the right balance of work and family, finding the right people to work with, finding the right setting... It's a process of learning as we go, and it's not something where you can make a plan when you're 19 years old and then you stick to your plan, but it's more being prepared and taking advantage of opportunities that present themselves to us. And I think if we are prepared and optimistic and prepared to use our minds and our hearts in what we do, I think there's very, very good lives ahead for all of us and all of your listeners. Mm. What a wonderful way to close, Dr. Rosenberg. And thank you so much for taking time out of your your schedule to join me for the show and share with our listeners. Really appreciate you being here. My pleasure, Elise. Thanks for the opportunity. You're welcome. You can learn more about the Task Force for Global Health and Dr. Rosenberg by visiting www.taskforce.org. It's been a very stimulating conversation that I hope will challenge our listeners to really consider the kind of impact that maybe you want to have in your lifetime. Dr. Rosenberg is a powerful example of what a dedicated, disciplined, and well-trained professional can do for the world, especially in partnership with a mission of such organizations like the Task Force for Global Health and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. I hope you were as inspired by him as I was and to actually hear his story. See you next week. And remember, work is at least one-third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.